Jack said, I'd like to thank Jack. Jack really carried the ball here. It was touch and go for a while, but it was the cunning of reason, as I would say. The opposition at the beginning led us to Ivy Hall, and I can't think of a better place to hold a talk on beauty than Ivy Hall. And I'd like to thank John Haas. He's, I talked to him earlier today. He had a, a, a dinner appointment with the Prince of the Two Sicilies. I didn't know there were two Sicilies anymore. <laughs> so, but uh, he's with us in spirit. And uh, it's, it's a moment for me, you know, coming back to Philadelphia. I grew up here. Uh, watched it go down the drain. Wrote books about it. Selling accelerated going down the drain. Uh, but these are, it's all in the past, okay? Because now we're going to talk about something completely different. We're going to talk about you. Eighteen seventy-nine, Spanish noble by the name of Marcelino Sanz de Santoro was busy cataloging the detritus at the entrance of a cave on his property when he heard a call from his eight-year-old daughter, who would wander farther into the kilometer along the cabin. Instead of following the example of her father and examining the floor of the cave, Santoro's daughter looked up and discovered that. She was in what looked like a large hall whose ceiling was covered with paintings of now extinct animals. In 1880, Satola published a report on his discovery, expecting a claim, but his Breves Apuntes sobre algunos obvietos prehistoricos de la provincia de Santander, or notes on some prehistoric objects in the Santander region was immediately attacked by a group of French archaeologists who accused Sotola of fraud, reasoning that cavemen were not capable of the artistic sophistication exhibited in the Altamira Caves. It was not until 22 years after his publication appeared and a number of years after his death that Sotola found posthumous vindication when a monsieur de Catillac a French archaeologist published Les Cavernes Pone de Saint, La Grande Altamira Espagne, Mea Culpa du Sceptique. From that moment, the cave paintings of Altamira gained a key place in international research in the prehistoric art. By 1922, caveman had become such an established figure in the modern movement. That's the, another one of those uh, paintings. Caveman had become such a uh, historic, uh, such an established figure in the modern mind that H.G. Wells dedicated the beginning of his history of the world to fanciful speculation on the details of his life, which was long on promoting sexual primitivism, but short on describing the one thing we knew about the cavemen who actually lived in Altamira, which was their art. G.K. Chesterton who studied at the Slade School in London and could tell from experience the actual skill that went into the cave paintings, expressed his frustration at Wells' materialism by claiming in The Everlasting Man that the simplest lesson we can derive from the newly discovered European cave paintings is that art is the signature of man. Art is a manifestation of rationality, which renders man uniquely separate from nature. 
because of that distance, man can represent nature in ways that are abstract, symbolic, and representative. The image Chester used to convey that rationality was the mirror. Reindeer man could draw, but the reindeer couldn't. Because man possessed a mind like, that is like a mirror. The human mind, Chesterton continues, is like a mirror because it is truly a thing of reflection. It is like a mirror because it, in it alone, all other shapes can be seen like shining shadows in the vision. Above, above all, it is like a mirror because it is the only thing of its kind. Other things may resemble it or resemble each other in various ways. Other things may excel it or excel each other in various ways. Just as the furniture in a room, uh, of a room, a table may be round like a mirror, or a cupboard may be larger than a mirror, but the mirror is the only thing that can contain them all. Man is the microcosm. Man is the measure of all things. Man is the image of God. These are the only real lessons to be learned in the cave. The word Plato used to refer to the mind's ability to reflect upon what the eye sees Mimesis. Mimesis means imitation. Art is imitation of nature. That's all it is. That's all it will ever be. Never going to be. And Aristotle got it right. It is never going to change. Now, the Altamira cave paintings are one of the earliest examples of art as mimesis. Let's move on here. Next. You're a caveman, remember caveman? Oh, gotcha. We're a little bit behind here. We're going to catch up. There's the mirror. Go ahead. Uh, this, all right, stop here. This is, this is a cave painting, okay? But at a certain point, uh, we're talking about uh, language. And we're talking about language, if you go to the earliest language that we know, it was often picture painting. And that's precisely what that is, is there. So uh, that, they're called hieroglyphics. Uh, maybe this was the first language. Because this is a significant fact here, that why did H.G. Wells get everything completely wrong? There's a one-word answer to that, and it's called evolution which completely screwed up the English mind for over a century now, and the American mind, insofar as we speak English and adopt uh, the English attitudes. There's one man who talked about this uh, in an intelligent way, and it was Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who was talking about the first man. Now, we know the first man was, was Adam, but he goes into it in a much deeper fashion because he says, uh, what is the essence of man? The essence of man is logos. Logos is speech. Painting and speech and art are all manifestations of logos. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Because when we're talking about beauty, beauty is a transcendental. There are three transcendentals. The good, the true, and the beautiful. And they all lead you to the same thing, which is their characteristics of being, their characteristics of God. Logos is God. 
That's what St. John said in the prologue of this gospel. So there are moments in history, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, where uh, sometimes the artist can portray what the philosopher cannot explain. Because beauty can lead you to the same place, but it leads you by a different path. But if we get back to Logos, Saint uh, Pope Benedict believes that the beginning of mankind was identical with man's utterance of the first word. And this is what he said, the clay became man at the moment in which a being for the first time was capable of forming however dimly the thought of God. The first thou that however stammeringly was said by human lips to God marks the moment in which the spirit arose in the world. Herein lies the reason why the moment of anthropogenesis cannot possibly be determined by paleontology. Anthropogenesis is the rise of the spirit which cannot be excavated with a shovel. That's what we're talking about here. I've talked, I wrote a book called Logos Rising. This is the sequel to that book because this is beauty rising in, in some sense. But if you, take, if you take language at the beginning of man, can't evolve. It cannot evolve. Language cannot evolve. Because there was a time when, as he said, when the first man spoke the first word, he probably spoke to God and said something to God. But then when he spoke the second word, it was to his wife. It was to Eve. Now you can't evolve into a situation like that. So what was the first word that Adam said to Eve? Hi, how are you? And Eve would say, fine, how are you? What else can they say? The point is that there is no possibility that two people could evolve on separate evolutionary tracks and develop the same language. This is the beginning of Logos in human history, and this is a manifestation of it, and art is the other manifestation of that, of that Logos. One of the, another, let's go, let's go forward here. There's that cutie. This is the Willensdorf Venus. An equally early form of uh, mimesis. Now, you probably figured out that this is not a graphic representation of the typical woman in a hunter-gatherer society that lived in Austria 30,000 years ago. Uh, for an example of what hunter-gatherers look like, I remember I recommend the Namibian uh, the Namibian uh, the, the hunter-gatherer in in Tao Tomo, and I can't do it, but they are clear in their language. Uh, it's in the gods must be crazy. So the whole point of the gods must be crazy is he looks at her and he says, "God, I can't marry her. It would take forever to feed that woman." I can't gather enough. So if we go back to the villains or Venus, uh, this is not a photo. This is a representation of the, I, I'm assuming a man did it, it's the essence of what a woman is and what a woman can do, which is basically she can bear children and she can nurse children. And everything else is sort of takes a back seat to that understanding. You couldn't take a picture. You had to use the mind, in other words, to come up with this representation. And the other thing that's significant is that the lady has no face. She's got very pronounced genitalia, but she's got no face, which is a sign that consciousness had not yet arisen here. This will also have uh, resonance when we get to uh, Tishi. 
Plato's idea of mimesis was based on an understanding of nature in which the, the world was divided between the sublunary realm of becoming, which was characterized by constant change, and the superlunary realm of forms, which never changed. Knowledge meant discovering a form which could be apprehended only by the mind. The human eye could not see the form. So those forms, uh, there's a form of the bed. And so the artisan, understanding what a bed is in his mind, imposes that form on wood and whatever else you need to make a bed. And that's pretty much the platonic understanding of art. Okay? Now the painter comes along, he paints the bed. So it's twice removed from reality. Well, it's not really important, then, is it? Uh, Plato did not have a high opinion of art. He felt that Socrates felt that certain poet poetry should be banned because it led to impiety, because you're constantly listening to way that uh, Zeus is having some affair with a cow or something like that. So he didn't like this idea. Uh, but what you had here was the Platonic understanding of art. And so the Platonic understanding would basically be uh, you take a form, let's say like uh, a triangle, a square, or whatever, and you impose it on matter. So let's say stone, so you, uh, you get a triangle shaped stone. You get a, a pillar, which is a circle, a long circle, and you get, you put the pillar up there, and then you get a rectangle, and you put it on top of those pillars, and you have a beam, and then you put the triangle on top of that, and you have a temple. So a Greek temple is basically a Platonized cave. Now, this is not only uh, what we're talking about here. That's the Parthenon. That's what I just described, okay? There's the pillar, there's the rectangle, there's the triangle. Very simple. Okay? And the problem is, it's so simple that it completely dominated Western thought for millennia, a millennium, at least, for over a millennium and a half. Uh, now, it's not quite that simple because what we're talking about is Plato as a, someone who understood Pythagoras, and Pythagoras understood numbers, and he felt that forms were numbers and that the world was made up of numbers. Now, we have, you know, numbers, we know what numbers are, but he had a deeper understanding of numbers. He had a kind of metaphysical understanding of numbers. So one, what does one mean? Well, one is unity. Unity is God. So the one is God. Two is diversity. It's multiplicity. It's more than one, so it can't be divine. So therefore, it's uh, nature. It's nature. Okay. Now you go to three. And what is three? Three is one plus two. So if you add uh, unity to diversity, you get beauty. That is the essence of what beauty is. That's the essence of what creation is. They didn't use the word creation. That's, and, and one way to understand this would be with ratios. He also talked about mm -hmm. ratios. And one of the most significant ratios is known as the golden ratio. So I was in a uh, parking lot in Missoula, Montana. And a woman came up to me and she said, uh, your hair is beautiful. So, why did she say that? Okay, the first reason she was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> she just 
second reason is my hair is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and why is my hair beautiful? Because you can see the golden ratio of where I part my hair. Now, why did I decide to part my hair that way? I don't, because I thought it looked good. So there is an objective nature to beauty. And one of the things that is objectively beautiful is the golden ratio. So if you go to the next, oh, there's that lady, okay. Oh, that was. <laughs> okay, so what, you, what you're talking about here is, oh, I get it now. The Parthenon, why do we find that attractive? Because it's a manifestation of the golden ratio. Uh, and also, uh, you can see the geometrical figures as the, uh, as part of this, this whole thing. We don't, we see a building, but what we, what we understand is that there's an order to that building that is somehow a cosmic order, and we understand it as beautiful, and that's how we understand, that's our introduction to this cosmic order. So the beauty that we perceive when viewing the Parthenon is governed by the relationship between the side and the diagonal in a series of squares. Each of the squares exists in relationship to the larger square Enclosing it in the ratio of 1 to 1.25. 1 to 25. Therefore, the whole proportional system is based on the functional relationship of the square of 2 to 1 to 1 to 5 or 5 fourths. This ratio is known as the golden ratio or 5. And it was divine because, like God, it contains within itself both identity and difference. It's both 1 and 2. The golden ratio could, is, so what we're seeing here, in many ways, is an inchoate understanding of the Trinity. Now the one thing that Plato did not know, know, and Aristotle did not know, is that God created, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. They thought the world was eternal. And because it was eternal, there was no creator. And if there's no creator, well there's no mind behind its inception. So if you have the idea of creation, which is the first sentence in Genesis, suddenly the universe becomes a work of art. Because it was made by someone. And if it becomes a work of art, you can study the universe, and you can, through the universe, study the universe, you can come to some understanding of the mind of God. And that's what we mean by a transcendental. You can have access to the mind of God. Now, if you read Logos Rising, you know that uh, I feel that St. Paul gave the wrong speech at the Areopagus. Uh, I know this is presumptuous of me. Maybe someday I'll be able to talk to St. Paul. But it's pretty clear he gave the wrong speech. He showed up in Athens. The Areopagus was a philosophical society. And he gave the Ephesus speech, which is basically about idol worship. Ephesus was run by silversmiths. They made idols, they made all their money. The old economy brought on idols, silver idols. And you're talking now to philosophers, they don't worship idols. They're philosophers. So he said, you know, I, I got something I have to tell you. St. Paul's always a man in a hurry. Uh, I need to talk to you about Jesus. And, and Jesus uh, was a man who came to, to save you. And he, he died, they killed him, and he rose from the dead. And at that point, everybody says, oh, okay. Well, we'll talk about this some other time. And they walked out. He gave the wrong speech. Now, I think there's one man who knew that he gave the wrong speech, and I think it was St. John, the evangelist, who was living in Ephesus at the time. 
with the Blessed Mother. And I think he wrote his gospel understanding the failure of that speech and also understanding that the world is now moving and we have to talk to the Greeks. And there's no point talking to the Greeks about Hebrew genealogies, like the House of David. They've never heard of these dudes. Okay, they don't know who they are. They could care less about them. So what does St. John do? He said, he had Genesis in mind. In the beginning, there was heaven and earth. But he was writing in Greek. And so he knew there was a whole vocabulary of philosophical terms. And so he said, in the beginning, there was Logos. Now we say, in the beginning was the Word. And I never couldn't figure that out. I don't know what that means. But until I studied Greek at this institution down the street here, uh, I realized that Logos was much more than that. Logos is the order of the universe. And, and he said, in the beginning there was Logos. There was never a time when there was chaos. There was always some type of order from the beginning. No matter where, what beginning you talk about, there was order because, and then he gets to the punchline. Logos is God. So now it's not just geometry, it's a person. And this person can now make sure that this plan takes place in history. It's not just, oh, you're studying geometry and you've got all these figures here and all that. That's great. But what's that got to do about me and what's that got to do about history? Because this is dynamic now. And now the Logos can move forward in history. Now, as I said, there's, there's a guy, I quote him in the book, who says basically that the golden proportion, the Logos, which was now associated with the sun, was both God and with God, which meant that Logos could act as a mediator between heaven and earth in a way that was analogous to the golden ratio, or five, which is a three-term continuous proposition in which the third term is equal to the first term plus the second term. A is to B as B is to A plus B. So that actually only two terms A are involved in that three-term proposition. That's the golden ratio, it's also the trinity. And so if, if let's say uh, a thought experiment, suppose uh, St. Paul has said, okay, uh, all right, you don't know who these Hebrew dudes are. Let's go to the Parthenon and there. Does that make sense to you? Do you see what's going on there? Because this is Logos and Logos is God. Now that might have been a beginning of a whole different thing. As it was, uh, Christianity didn't land in Athens until 600 years later. Paul's disgusted with the philosophers, and it comes out in the next epistle, which is epistle to the Corinthians. So the hell with the philosophers. I'm going to Corinth, which is a seaport, and I'm going to talk to sailors and prostitutes. And there he says, you know, I, am, I, am, I, am, I have no wisdom. All I have is Christ and him crucified. Well, okay, that's good. But this is still important. And you still miss an opportunity because this is going to be a vehicle for Logos in human history as well. And oftentimes, the point I'm going to make tonight is the artist can portray what the philosopher cannot understand. How many times have you had the uh, emotion, the experience of a piece of music that just transported you to a, a, a different realm, or moved you in the depths of my apostasy? Uh, I heard Handel's Messiah and it got me up out of the chair and walked to the door of a church. Uh, but I didn't go in, it took a little longer than that. But at least it moved me out of my chair. This is the power, of the beauty. that's beauty. That's what beauty has. 
Or the opposite, I go to the uh, a Taj Mahal in India, and you have to walk, there's a camel cart, and you have to walk there, and you walk through this big, enormous gate, and you stand there, and you see everything, all at once. It's like an explosion of beauty, because the temple, uh, the, it's a tomb, it's in exactly the right place, it's beautiful, it's in the exact right situation with the garden, and you just want to stand there, and you just think, I don't have to do anything else. I can just sit here and stand here and look at this thing. That's the situation. Now, as I said, this was so powerful. What Greek Plato's understanding was so powerful that it crippled the development of art in Europe up to this point. For a thousand years, everyone was a Platonist. Aristotle came late, gone through the Greeks, uh, gone through the Arabs. Uh, Aquinas was reading the translation from the Verbies. Uh, there was something, it was holding everybody back. And the man who understood this was Vasari, who wrote the history of art in Italy. And he begins with Giotto. This is the Arena Chapel. And he said, what he said about uh, Giotto is that Giotto wrote with Greek models. Now, I think the Greek model he's talking about is the icon. And if you remember the icon, it's a you know, straightforward, full face view of uh, some saint or blessed mother god or whatever. And the background is gold. And the background is gold because gold is eternal. It never changes. Okay? And that's that's it. And so at a certain point, uh, the idea changed. It took about, what are we talking about here? Maybe 1300, 1200, 1300. So it took about a thousand years, which is time that they discovered the Trinity, a thousand years to understand the implications of creation for art. That's what we're talking about here. The, this, the world was created, which means it's a work of art. This means that there are two realms, where ideas and flux, idea, flux, spaces, flux, and they'll never come together. It's a different situation. And at this point, the man who understood the implications of this was almost a contemporary of Giotto, and I'm talking about Thomas Aquinas. Now, Aquinas perfected Aristotle. Aristotle broke with Plato because he said there are no separated forms. The form is in the thing itself. It's called entelechy. Aquinas took that idea and combined it with the idea, the Christian idea of creation, and he came up with a whole new explanation. Aquinas perfected Aristotle. In 1306, which is to say roughly 30 years after Aquinas died, Giotto painted frescoes on the wall of the Arena Chapel. At that point, that's the Arena Chapel if you go back there. And what you see here, it's hard to tell because these are not you know, pictures, but what you're seeing here is uh, the background is a golden. There's something going on here. Vasari mentions that there's a, an illustration of Christ in the boat. And suddenly you have these pictures. You've got the drama of the 
Scripture now in the ark. And the, the, the apostles are terrified because of the storm. You have much more drama. You have much more intimate connection with the psychological uh, uh, issues that are going on here. This is what Giotto did. And I'm saying he did it because of Aquinas. Now, we don't know. Probably did, did Giotto read Aquinas? He could have. He apparently did a portrait of uh, Aquinas. But we don't know. And I'm saying, in many ways, it doesn't matter. Because when you're talking about the realm of ideas, if an idea gets out, it gets out into the ether and it spreads around and people don't, it's like the leaven in the loaf. Remember that? How does the kingdom of God spread? Well, no one knows. You know, you put the lead, you put the loaf down there, the dough is that size, you come back in the morning, it's that size. And you don't know how it spread. Well, this is an idea that spread. What was this idea? Idea, Aquinas reversed Platonic aesthetics. Okay? The Greeks, they never used the terms like existence and essence, which is what the Aquinas used, but they were implicit in Plato and Aristotle's understanding of the world was made up of matter and form. According to this theory, the real world was made up of forms or essences, which are timeless. The mind could gain access to the world of forms by apprehending things like numbers or geometrical shapes and then impose them through art on the world of flux because it was always changing. The classic example was the temple that we already talked about. Aquinas changed all that. Now, he never wrote a, a treatise on aesthetics, but he wrote a treatise on being. And in that, he said, existence is the form which calls essence into being. In a true sense, then, the most normal, that is, most perfective element of substance is existence and not substantial form. Complete reversal. He could do that because God created heaven and earth. And it wasn't meaningless flux. And there is logos in nature. There's never been a time when there wasn't logos. And logos is suffused with nature. And at this point, you could sit down and if you studied nature, you could come up with a form. Nature, existence, gave birth to the form. And that is the beginning of the greatest uh, period of art in world history. And I'm talking about Italy from the time of Giotto up to where? Pietro Anagoni, 1947. It never stopped. It's still there. It's still there. By the way, his most famous, I think his most famous portrait is the portrait of Queen Elizabeth, who just died. Brilliant, beautiful portrait. Okay, this changed the world. Okay? It's so I'm trying to think, what, what was it like? I was taught, I tried to explain this to a bunch of the teenagers from Missouri. And one of them said to me, the terrain precedes the map. That's exactly right. The terrain precedes the map. The map does not precede the terrain. That would be Plato. Now the terrain precedes the map. You derive the form from existence, okay? Now, part of the shock that came to me during when I'm doing this book is I start reading Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain, the two most famous Thomists of the 20th century, uh, people who were very influential in my life. Uh, and I started reading Gilson's aesthetics. Uh, Gilson was known as a Thomist, but when it comes to aesthetics, he's a Platonist because he says 
that being is known as matter when it is determined and as a form when it does the determining. This is the exact opposite of Aquinas said. So he's a Thomas and he doesn't understand Thomas Aquinas. Maritain said the same thing. Bielsson uh, succumbed to what we will call formalism, which is a, a perennial danger in art criticism. Uh, and we'll talk about it uh, a little bit later on. But uh, he, this is what he said. He said, uh, uh, turn, uh, he said, there is no difference whatever between representational and abstract art. That's Etienne Chasson saying. So wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying there's no difference between the Pieta and Jack the Dripper? <laughs> abstract expressionism? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. He was influenced by French Impressionism, I think, badly if he was a French patriot or chauvinist, depending on how you want to talk about it. And he was influenced by this. So it, it goes on to say, even considered in themselves and apart from any possible signification, straight lines, angles, diagonals, triangles, rectangles, curved circles, spirals, in short, all possible geometrical figures are in themselves formed and consequently are definite objects. Abstract painters and representational painters are likewise creating forms and by the same token, beings. So there's no difference between abstract art and no. That's wrong, okay? He goes on to say, the classical position, according to which, he affirms the classical position, according to which existence comes to things through form. That's the exact opposite of what Aquinas said. Aquinas said, existence calls essence into being. He's saying the exact opposite. Form cannot confer being. Only existence can confer being. He didn't understand that. Okay? Now, there's one man who did understand it. It was Umberto Eco. He's famous for that novel he wrote, which was made into a horrible movie. Uh, but he said that the medieval painters who preceded Giotto never discovered how to connect their metaphysical concepts with beauty with their knowledge of artistic techniques, leaving them in two distinct and unrelated worlds. And the best example of that that I can give is a medieval illustration of Adam and Eve in a book called Trailleur de la Duc de Berry, which was created between 1413 and 1460. Now, this is a, this is a, a page in that book. Now, I can go into, if you read the book, and I think you should read the book, as a matter of fact, you're not getting out of here until you <laughs> uh, You will see there is a long formalistic explanation uh, by Boileau of what's going on in this picture. And it basically all revolves around the use of the compass. Uh, so, but, so there's obviously a circle here, obviously. But then we have the story of Adam and Eve. Now, the story begins up here. This is Eve taking the, the uh, apple. And then it moves counterclockwise. Down here we have Eve giving the apple to Adam. Uh, now actually, th th this is Adam and Eve being uh, wedded by God, leads to that, down to here. And then it comes around here, and here we are. Adam and Eve are being expelled from paradise. Okay, that's great. 
But you've got two completely different realms, just as exactly what Umberto Eco said. So you've got geometry and you've got the Bible, but they're completely different. And they, the one doesn't help the other at all. Like, what's the focal point of this thing? I, in my humble opinion, there is no focal point. The, the focal point, as far as I can see, is, okay, this is architecture. That's great. But what's it doing there? I don't know. There's other architecture. There's obviously logos going into this thing. There's obviously all sorts of calculations. And if you read the book, you can see how complicated these calculations were. But it's a work of art. It's a failure. Because the eye finds no corresponding visual correlative or focus in the painting itself. So this is before Giorgio. This is the Middle Ages. They knew about geometry. They knew about the compass. They knew about all this type of stuff. They knew about Adam and Eve. They knew about creation. They knew all these things, but they couldn't put them together. Okay, then we have Giotto. And then we have something even more significant, which is Piero della Francesco. Now, this is the baptism of Christ. Now, first thing you probably noticed here is the golden ratio. Right there. The second thing you probably noticed is uh, John is baptizing Jesus Christ. Yes, that is the focal point. It's clearly the focal point of this thing. That's what this thing is about. And so we have a kind of unification now of geometry and story in a way that we did not have before that. So we're get, getting now to a fundamental principle of beauty. What is beauty? Beauty is existence and essence taken together. And what when you see beauty, you see a complete fusion of what is organized and what is real. So it's not geometry. It's not like looking out the window, because that's real, but it's not organized. Uh, it's a combination of both. And when we have this kind of maximal apprehension, simultaneous apprehension, of both essence and existence, we call it beauty. Now, if you take this to a theological level, God is absolute existence and he's absolute essence. And when we die, if we die and go to heaven, we will contemplate absolute essence and actual absolute existence, and it's known as the beatific vision. And it will be so beautiful and so powerful that we will be able to contemplate that for eternity. Do you see the connections here? Between, do you see the transcendental motion here? Here's the, here's the geometry that we're talking about. Okay? Oh, I get it. It's triangles and circles. We're back to Pythagoras, remember? The circle is one. That's unity. The triangle is three. That's unity plus diversity. And then we have, what's the center? What's, what's, this, what's the mediator between eternity and time? Between heaven and earth? It's Jesus Christ. He is what Plato would have called the demi-orgos. Okay? Uh, the demi-orgos, this resolves the conflict in, in the heart of Greek philosophy, where we have Plato who said God is the demi-orgos, which means he operates in time. But wait a minute, if you're operating in time, you're not eternal, so you're not God. 
Aristotle, on the other hand, said the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover was God. Well, that's true, because that is eternal. But who is he? And does he care about me? And he's in eternity and I'm in time. So what's the, what you have here is the resolution of that with the Trinity. Because Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And so what you're seeing here is a manifestation of that fact. So, there's the Holy Spirit at the apex of the triangle, which is a symbol of the Trinity. God's up there. You can't, you don't, you can't see God. Okay? But he's up there. So the straight line goes down here, and there we have Jesus Christ. And here is the circle. The circle, which is unity, comes around here, and it goes right through his navel. And his navel is a symbol of his humanity. And here we have a graphic representation of how Jesus Christ is both the eternal Logos and true God and true man. Now, when you look at that painting, you understand this intuitively. And I'm saying this was the moment in history. By this, by the time that Pierre Del Francesco is doing his paintings, uh, nobody knew who Aquinas was. Aquinas had been completely eclipsed. He was replaced by William of Ockham, who uh, introduced a completely corrosive uh, philosophy uh, known as nominalism, uh, which was then scholastic philosophy, which basically turned God into an Islamic God of pure will, and you couldn't know anything about it. And the main manifestation, the prime student of William of Ockham was Martin Luther, because everybody learned nominalism when they were being taught in the seminary. So what I'm saying here is that that insight that I told you of, of Aquinas, of being, existence calls essence into being, is only being carried forward by art. You can't find it in the philosophical schools. It's there waiting to be rediscovered. By the time we have uh, the Re Thomas Revival, which is uh, 1850, let's say, we're here at 1350. 500 years, Aquinas is complete eclipse here. But the, uh, the idea is being carried forth forward by art. Okay, another step forward. Now this is Titian, okay? Titian came after Pietro della Francesco. Titian knew everything that Della Francesco knew about composition and circles and triangles. Every single artist by this point, we're talking about the middle of the 16th century, they knew that because this is a tradition that got passed on from one artist to another. You went to work at an atelier and this is, they knew this. They knew the geometry. This is not a big deal anymore. We all know geometry. And so what does Titian do? He takes mimesis in a completely different direction where we have now psychological drama. Art can be a vehicle for psychological drama. And here we have a prime example of psychological drama. So again, we've got, uh, okay, there's the golden ratio. And there's the background, you know, this is, Giotto told you you can put a background in there. You're situating this thing in nature. Nature has been redeemed now because, but now, so what happened here? We have Jesus Christ rising from the dead and the first person who meets him is Mary Magdalene. And you have an incredibly sophisticated drama going on here right now. 
So basically, here's Mary Magdalene. She was a prostitute, okay, so she was no stranger to carnal love. And here is her Lord and Savior. She loves her Lord and Savior. So what is the first instant instinct that you have when you're caught up with someone you love? You want some type of unity, and generally that means sexual unity. Okay, so what's she doing? She's reaching for his genitals. Okay? And he's putting up a hand like that and blocking that gesture, that, that intention of hers. And when he blocks that, her eyes go up. And her eyes go up, and now they're looking at the heart. And so what you have here is a, an allegory of sacred and profane love. And so what, what has to happen here is this, this, sexual in, in, this sexual impulse. It's not bad, but it has to be sublimated into something higher. And so carnal love now becomes divine love, love of God. That's what's happening. This is a brilliant psychological study. I mean, it's brilliant. I, I, I showed, I, I got all enthused about this, so I'm running around showing this picture to everyone. And I showed it to a Muslim lady from Afghanistan who was studying at Notre Dame. And she, I gave that explanation, she said, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the picture, that's all in your mind. You shouldn't have said that. You've got a dirty mind. That was pretty much the gist of what she said. Now, why, why did she say that? Well, she said because she's a Muslim. And Muslims are not allowed to do uh, images. I've been all over Iran. I've seen beautiful mosques. They have beautiful tiles. They have beautiful patterns in the ceiling. When I was, I, they, I was taken to the mosque in Isfahan, which is one of those beautiful, and the guy who's taking me around takes me to a rug shop. And he sits me down and says, pick any rug. So I'm staring at a rug that is made out of silk, and it is a replica of the ceiling of the mosque. And I thought, that is the most beautiful thing that I ever see. And stupidly, I said, well, you pick one. I said, no, I want that one. That one, I don't care how much it costs. I want that one. So he gave me a, a bath mat from Baluchistan. <laughs> uh, but she, she was not educated. She was not educated enough in art where you can use art by dealing with these intimate uh, issues and not be dragged down by concupiscence. You're not dragged down into some type of sensual dead end. It's sublimated, it's higher. And the higher, when you sublimate that art, it becomes a kind of beauty. Okay, now this was the crisis that Titian's involved in at this point. Because, let's go to the next one. Uh, that was an optimistic painting. This is a pessimistic painting. So what's going on here? Who is this Shami Chit here? That's Venus, the goddess of love. Okay, now we have the exact opposite going on here now, because what is happening to Titian? He has gotten so good at mimesis that he can paint naked ladies that look actually real. Uh, the problem is when you do that really effectively, you can arouse concupiscence. And there are people here uh, in uh, Venice at this point who are actually interested in that, uh, that type of sexual arousal. So this is a, a portrait of his dilemma. This is the artist here. And the artist is symbolized by the organ. The organ is music. Uh, music, remember Pythagoras? All those musical ratios, that's exactly what Pythagoras was talking about. 
So here we have the artist at this point in history. He's got one hand on the keyboard, and what's he looking at? Well, he's not looking at her face. I can tell you that. He's completely distracted by the sensual nature of the beauty that he sees in the female body, and he's looking at her crutch. Okay, and she is disappointed. She's looking at a dog. The dog is the symbol of passion. Uh, she's the goddess of beauty. And it's a warning. It's a warning. We're heading in the wrong direction. Think of me. I got all these rich guys that want me to do pornography. And I'm stuck in the middle. I'm trying to do beauty. They want pornography. What am I supposed to do? I'm getting distracted. And that's exactly what the musician has happened, happened to you. That's what's going on here. So there's a crisis over the horizon. What's the next uh, picture? Now, this is, again, the same type of thing, except it's you now. You're the center of attraction, because she's looking right at you. Remember the villain, Willendorf Venus? Remember? The one she had great breast, but no face. Okay? Well, this is a lady who's got uh, both. And she's looking right at you, and the question is, what's it going to be? Again, psychological drama. What's it going to be? Is it going to be uh, uh, sacred or profane love? Is it going to be monogamy? Is it going to be holy marriage, holy matrimony, or is it going to be fornication? Because both possibilities, they're both possible here. This is his portrayal of that dilemma. Uh, this is sacred versus profane love. Which is it going to be? We have, we have been redeemed because of Jesus Christ. We can see the, the heavenly city up there, if you follow uh, uh, sacred love. But uh, it's, it's an open question now. We don't know. Uh, we're heading into uncharted waters here. Okay? Now, this is Jesus' best friend. It's Pietro Aretino. Titian did the portrait of Pietro Aretino. He's obviously a contemporary. He's living in Venice. Venice is the capital of the world right now. It is the cultural Italy. If you want to know what Italy was at that time, read Shakespeare. Shakespeare is in awe of Italy. Okay, everything. It's the center of everything. And he's at the, Venice is the center of commerce. They, they invented double entry bookkeeping there. The Germans, like the Fuggers, are all coming down to study business. And Aretino's there, and he is the he is. The, uh, the best-selling author in uh, Venice at the time. Uh, he publishes letters, he's a poet, and he also has the distinction of being the first pornographer. Okay? He wrote uh, a series of pornographic sonnets, which is okay, but pornography is always a function of technology, and the new technology here was the book, the printed book. Uh, Gutenberg's printing press had been invented. It had been poured into uh, Venice, and Venice was leading the world in the production of books. So now, what you did was he collaborated with a guy whose name is Raimondi. Uh, Raimondi, uh, one of those princes I was talking about, the Duke of Mantua, had a pleasure palace, and he painted pornographic frescoes around one of his rooms. Raimondi took those, copied them, and cut them into wood blocks. Put the woodblock in a book, and now you have the pornographic sonnet, and you've got the pornographic uh, picture to go with it. Okay? They were immediately banned. Uh, the guy who did it was thrown in jail. 
But there's something out in, it's, as I said, it's in the easel. So let's go to the next picture. This is the Sistine Chapel. Now, Michelangelo is younger than these guys. He's influenced by all of these currents going on. And he's trying to, he's been commissioned to do sacred art. This was incredibly controversial at the time. Okay? Um, because, okay, and one of the, the people who was most offended by Michelangelo's frescoes uh, in the Sistine Chapel was Aretino. He's a pornographer and he's offended by what uh, Michelangelo put on the wall because there's all this nudity. Other people were offended. Uh, Carlo, uh, the Cardinals, a lot of Cardinals. Cardinal, uh, uh, Federico Borromeo, the cousin of Carlo Borromeo, the famous secretary, senator, he's right down the street here. He was offended. Now, what are we talking about here? Why are, why are we offended? Is it the human body? No, there's... Nudity is not per se offensive, but it's a chapel. And it, it might be distracting to have these naked bodies on the wall when you're trying to uh, attend mass. Maybe that's not the best thing to do. And on top of that, do we have another picture here of this? Yeah, this is the other thing. Who is that dude there with the paddle? What, what saint is he? Which saint is that? Who is it? It's not a saint. <laughs> It's Charon, and that's the boat, and that's the river Styx. And he's, he's, he's taking the souls of the dam across the river Styx. Now this is brilliant, brilliant psychology. Like, look at that guy's face. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> it's over. I can't do anything. There's another picture, I don't think we have it here. But there's one guy, he's standing there, and he's got one hand over one eye, and you can tell by looking at the eye, it's like, oh no, it's over. I'm going to hell. I mean, the psychology of this is absolutely brilliant. But they're saying, wait a minute, this is pagan mythology, why is that in a chapel? So we're, we're, you can see this crisis is building. It's partly to do with my nieces, it's partly to do with the pagan influences. Uh, where are we going with this? Well, we found out in 1527, uh, the German mercenaries came to Rome uh, and uh, they didn't get paid. And whenever mercenaries don't get paid, they get annoyed, and so they sacked Rome. And part of what they did when they sacked Rome was they stabled their horses in the Sistine Chapel. And when they were, we know they were art critics because there's another room where they carved the name Martin Luther on the wall. This is 1527, it's 10 years after his uh, profession of faith. Go back, so we're not going to today. So they go back, and what happens here is that they go back to Germany, and suddenly we have a holy crisis, the exact opposite of pornography, which is iconoclasm. So now there are people who are saying, all art is bad. All art is bad. It leads, it's a kind of, they, they, Protestants tend to be Judaizers. Okay, and, and so we're going back to this Judaic uh, uh, aversion to graven images, which the Muslims picked up. And now we got Muslim theology from basically William of Ockham, and we're predisposed for it. This is the age of devotionalism, okay, where you have this devotion to Christ, which is not really rooted in any type of logical, metaphysical principle. 
And so suddenly the church is confronted with crisis. But what do we do now? What do we do? Do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? And the answer to that was the Council of Trent. And that's what we have there, the church fathers coming together at the Council of Trent. And this is Federico Borromeo on the right. And he basically writes a treatise, the, the document that uh, gets issued as a statement on sacred art. And so sacred art is necessary because we're uh, creatures, we're a flesh. We have bodies. We exist in nature. And so therefore we're moved by the senses. Aquinas said all your knowledge comes through the senses. Now, that's not, that's not a bad thing, but you have this cripple, this concupiscence, this tendency always to take it in the wrong way. And so there's this battle here. Who's going to win at? Are we going to have this completely iconoclastic view where no art whatsoever and just the Bible, we just read the Bible? Or are we going to have pornography? Which is, you're always being confronted with choices like this. Especially now. It's like when, when Queen Elizabeth dies, okay? You have this lady, uh, this professor somewhere saying, I hope she had an excruciating death. <laughs> well, that's awful to say that. But that leads right to Tucker Carlson, who then defends the British Empire as benign. No, my Irish relatives would think it's different. <laughs> but you see, you see what I'm saying here? You're always confronted with two equally repugnant alternatives. And this is the classic example of those equally repugnant alternatives. So what was it? The Council of Trent issues its statement. It rescues the whole thing. That's great. Okay, so what is the reaction of our separated brethren? Well, it was called, uh, started in Holland, started in Antwerp, and it was called the Beldensturm, from the German word Bildersturmerei, which is their word for iconoclasm. So, as if in defiant response to the Council's decree on art, a mob of Dutch Calvinists, German Anabaptists, and English soccer hooligans, no, actually they weren't saying. <laughs> attacked, they were English though. Attacked the cathedral in Antwerp on August 20th, 1566, igniting a wave of iconoclasm known as the Beldenstorm, which swept north and east, all but obliterating the patrimony of sacred art in the Netherlands. According to Richard Clough, a Welsh Protestant merchant living in Antwerp at the time, the church of Our Lady looked like hell with about 10,000 torches burning and such a noise as if heaven and earth had gotten together with falling of images and beating down of costly works, such sort that spoil was so great that a man could not well pass through the church. So that in fine and short, I cannot write to you with this, this number of sheets of paper, the strange sight I saw there, organs and all destroyed. Nicholas Sander, an English Catholic exile who was a professor of theology in Leuven, witnessed the destruction of the same church and stood helplessly, uh, stood there helplessly as these fresh followers of this new preaching threw down the graven and defaced the painted images not only of Our Lady, but of all others in the town. They tore the curtains, dashed in pieces the carved work of brass and stone, break the altars, spoiled the claws and corpuses, rested the irons, conveyed away, or sparing not the glass and seats which were made about the pillars of the church, 
for men to sit in. The blessed sacrament of the altar they trod under their feet and horrible to say, shed their stinking piss upon it. These false brethren burned and rent not only all kinds of church books, but moreover destroyed whole libraries of books, all sciences and tongues, yea, the holy scriptures and the ancient fathers, and tore in pieces the maps and charts of the descriptions of the country. If you've been through the 60s, you probably remember that it was the Catholics who did that to the churches when that finished. <laughs> the Council of Trent's document was sacred art, combined with the iconoclasm in 1566, awakened new interest in art theory. And one of the men who responded to this challenge was Peter Paul Rubens. That thing is the response to both pornography and iconoclasm. Now I was, I saw that painting in person. It was at the University, it was at the Toledo Museum of Art. And when I got there to see it, uh, I went five hours to get it because the line was so, so long. So first time I look at, there's the 50s room and that's abstract expressionism. And that's all abstract forms. Doesn't make any sense. And it's not alive. There's nothing living about that. It's just a design. Then I went to the 70s room, and that was all photographic, basically, hyper-realism, where you basically project a photograph on the wall and you color it in. And there are two extremes. The one is form without life, the other one's life without form. And then you walk down and you finally get into the Rubens exhibit, and this is the first thing you see. And when I walked in there, I stood there and I was just transfixed because this is beauty. This is one of the most stunning portraits I've ever seen in my life. And why is that? Well, you know, I can talk about it. But basically, remember all of those discussions we had about all those triangles and, and whatever? Uh, is this platonic? Is there a platonic form of the Princess Spinola Doria somewhere? No. Is it related to those forms? Of course it is. And if you look long enough, well, you can see this is a triangle, isn't it? And it culminates in a circle. Uh, and so the geometry there, but it's real. So it's organized and it's real. It's unified, it's unity and diversity. And when you look at that something, that's beautiful. And that's the story up to that point. Thank you.